Hey, what's up, everybody? Hope you are having a fantastic week. Happy Friday. And you're looking forward to a great, great weekend. Uh, I found some time to jump on live real quick. I uh, won't be able to take calls right now. I'm not going to be able to stay on for more than about 45 minutes, I think. But I wanted to talk about something. Of course, I'm going to give my comments on the Benavidez andre fight. But, you know, I've been asked a few times about the state of boxing right now, where we're at. Uh, recently by friends of mine that know me as, you know, the boxing guy, you know, friends of mine that are just casual fans who always ask me boxing related questions. Anytime they have one, they're like, oh, call Mike. He's the boxing guy, right? I'm known as that in, in many circles. And um, I've been wanting to do a video talking about that for a while, just uh, where we're at in boxing right now and kind of how we got here in this really fragmented, what I would call watered down state. I know I'm not the only one who feels that way. And how, you know, I was thinking about the benavidez Andre fight that took place last Saturday and how that ties in and correlates, how it's indicative and symbolic, I should say, of the state of boxing where we're at right now. So I'm going to give you guys a little bit of a history lesson for some of you younger guys. This will be a great video for you just to learn a little bit about some of the uh, as it relates to the divisions and the sanctioning organizations. Um how they've expanded and globalized. And I've done videos on this before, but I haven't done it in a while. So you could go back and watch some videos I've done about this stuff on my channel from the past, but sometimes it's good just to kind of rehash this stuff and take another look at it um, and compare it to the modern state that we're in. Okay, so I'm going to break all that down and um, we're going to have some fun. Uh, won't be able to talk too long. Hold on, I got some spam person. In here let me get rid of them in the chat and uh i'll release this on uh audio too so you guys can listen so let's let's start with um okay i'm going to give you a take real quick that is probably going to be controversial especially in the eyes of a lot of the old school dudes the old school historians the purists the writers from way back in the day they're going to completely disagree with me if you talk to most of those guys they will tell you that there just isn't as much talent in the sport today as there was in the heyday of the, everyone loves to mentally masturbate about the 1970s, right? That, that in, in many people's eyes, that was the peak of boxing, at least in the United States. My contention, my, my firm belief, and I will debate anybody at any time on this. Okay. That's how confident I feel in this take. There is without a doubt more talent in this sport, in boxing, globally, collectively, today, than at any point in the history of the sport. And you'll notice I didn't blink when I said that because I really, truly believe it. I've seen so much evidence of it, and I'm talking amateur all the way up through the professional ranks, okay? There is more collective global talent in this sport right now in 2023 than there was, yes, in the 1970s or any, any, any other era you want to point to. The 1990s, some people talk about the 50s, the 40s, the 30s, any era you want to point to. There's actually more talent today. So a lot of you out there, you might say, okay, Mike, I'll, I'll entertain that concept. But why do we have less stars today? Why do we have fewer boxing stars if we have so much more talent? Because the sport's watered down. There is less distinction. 
between fighter A and fighter B. Uh, champion A and champion B, because there are so many champions. If you have literally more than 100 champions in a sport, if you have 19 divisions to keep track of, it becomes increasingly difficult to see one guy different from the other. So for the casual sports fan, they just kind of see boxers all the same. Now, every now and then a Floyd Mayweather still pops up, a Manny Pacquiao, Canelo Alvarez. These guys still pop up every now and then, right? Maybe now today, Javante Davis is starting to take on that role here in America. And Naoya Inoue is starting to do it globally. But So there's guys that pop up, but it's not like it was before, uh, particularly in the United States. And my belief, and I, I will present evidence for this, is that the reason, the biggest, I mean, there are plenty of reasons, but the biggest reason is there's just not a lot of distinction between one guy and the, and, or the next because they're all champions. Everyone's a champion. Everyone gets a belt. Everyone's a champion. All right, so let's take a look. Oh, before I get started real quick, and again, I'm going to tie this all to Benavidez Andre, and I'll give my thoughts on that, okay, guys? Uh, super chat from CJ Duncan. Thank you so much, my man. Hope you're doing well. Hope you and the family are doing well. He says, the point is, ladies and gentlemen, that greed, for lack of a better word, is good. Michael Douglas, it's a mix, boxing promoters and sanctioning bodies. Um, great film, by the way. I might need to check that out this weekend. I haven't seen that in a while. It's it's kind of cold and rainy here in Atlanta, like all weekend. It's not cold enough to snow. So you, we're getting that cold rain. It's like 40 degrees and rainy. I hate that shit. Um, but good time to watch some movies. So maybe I'll, I'll put that on, my man. Um, anyway, thank you again for the super chat. And look, I agree with you. Uh, look, I could get into the promoters. I could do a video on that. I could talk about the networks. Um, and let me be clear, I, I will state this. There are more promoters promoting more fighters than ever before at any time in history of boxing. And there are more platforms broadcasting boxing today than at any other time in the history of the sport. So that is absolutely part of the fragmentation in watering down. And, and for some of you out there who, who are like, what do you mean by watered down, Mike? Okay, think about it this way. If I'm cooking... If I'm cooking pasta, right, and I'm making sauce, and I got a pot of sauce on the stove, and I'm cooking it all day, and it's cooking down, it's cooking down, and after five or six hours, I have a nice, thick, hearty tomato sauce, right? And I can pick it up with a spoon, and it, it doesn't run. It's, it's just, it's nice and thick and hearty. What would happen if I were to take, I don't know, 24 ounces of water, I'm just naming a random number, and pour it in the sauce? What would happen? It would water down. It would become thinner. It would be less rich, less hearty, less flavorful. It would be more bland and mundane. That is what has happened to this sport. Okay, that is what I mean by watered down. And I'm not trying to say that in a negative in a negative way. I'm not trying to be a hater or be Mr. Curmudgeon and negative. I'm just trying to break down how we got to where we're at right now uh, and how Demetrius Andrade, and I'm going to use him as an example, is indicative and symbolic of everything that is wrong with the sport today. And I'm not going to, I'm not going to beat up on Andre. I'm not trying to be a hater or be negative. I'm not trying to kick a man while he's down. He's obviously having a rough week after what happened last Saturday, but he is very much the symbol 
of the watered-down na- uh, nature of this sport and how a guy like him can make eight figures as a prize fighter, which he has throughout his career, in this era versus eras in the past. Okay, so <clears throat> I want to show you guys a little, just a tiny little uh, graphic I put together here. Uh, okay, these are the divisions in boxing, okay? Um, and I just wanted to give you guys a real brief historical view. So you guys always hear about the original eight, right? And actually, if you go back far enough, like to the 19th century, there was an original five. And heavyweight, there were actually heavyweight fights as uh, as early as the 1700s. I mean, seriously, there, there are documented heavyweight fights that go back that far. But when boxing started to become a little more regulated and controlled uh, in the late 19th century, you essentially had five divisions. But then by the early 20th century, where boxing really exploded, you had eight divisions. Okay, and of course, at that time, there was one champion. Um, The New York State Athletic Commission, a lot of people saw them as having the world's champion. They were the ones who, who, you know told you who the champion was and you kind of went with them. There were no governing bodies that were seen as like a major organization that clearly told, you know, had the champion. So, so it was kind of no man's land early on in that regard, but there were eight divisions to keep track of eight divisions. Okay. So let's compare that real quick to let's say the NFL here in America. That's, you know, for you guys outside of America, when I talk about football, I don't mean the little round ball you kick around into the net. I'm talking about American gridiron football, okay? The National Football League here in the United States is the pre- premier professional foot- American football league globally, okay? I'm talking about American-style football. It's the premier league. It's synonymous with pro football. When you think pro football, you think NFL, there's a Canadian football league. There's all these other foot. There's an arena league, all this stuff, but the NFL is the top dog, right? Okay. The NFL is two conferences and in each conference, there are four divisions. So there are eight divisions. Each division has a champion and then they all play each other in the playoffs. So then you get an AFC champion, NFC champion. They play each other in the Super Bowl. So if you're a casual NFL fan, there are eight divisions you have to keep track of. And I believe off the top of my head, each of these divisions has four teams. Okay. So it's, it's fragmented, but all these guys play each other in the end. And it's not as if there are 20 divisions, there are eight. And it makes sense. It's, it's okay. So I wanted to stick with that NFL comparison because of the number eight divisions, go back to boxing, eight original divisions. So even if you were a casual fan a hundred years ago, and you're basically listening to fights on the radio, reading about them in newspapers. And if you had a chance to, particularly if you're in the New York area, which New York really controlled boxing back in that day, uh, you could go to fights live. That was the best way, of course, really the only way to see them. You either listened on the radio, read about it in the newspaper the next morning, or you were lucky enough to go to a fight. But there were eight names you had to know. Eight. Even the most casual football fan here in America, walking around, could probably name eight players. Now, they're probably all going to be quarterbacks, and maybe some of them aren't aren't playing anymore. They might name like Joe Montana or you know Peyton Manning or somebody like that, Tom Brady, um, but they could name eight players, right? Even the most, your mom, your grandma could probably name eight players. Well, that's how many names you had to know at one point in boxing. Eight. There were 
one champ per division, eight divisions, eight names you had to know to follow the sport as a complete casual. Today, there are more than 100 champions. I'm not exaggerating. There are literally more than 100 champions. There are 19 divisions today. And I want, that's why I wanted to break out this graphic. Okay. So on the left side, you guys see the original divisions and the, the years that I put here are the years that they became active and recognized. Now, there were fights before these dates, including the junior super divisions, but I chose to use the years where they, th these divisions became recognized and active in modern boxing the way we know it today with the modern rules, okay? So original divisions, you see um, the, the original five I talked about and then a few more added on in the early 20th century. And then you go over to the junior super divisions and there's just been more and more and more of these divisions added. Not all of these divisions are fully recognized. Um, I think the WBC has two of them, which is like Adam weight, which is 102 pounds. And then they have um, Bridger weight, right? Which is not fully recognized. So there's a couple of these that are not recognized by the entire boxing world. But right now in professional boxing, there are sanctioned fights around the world in 19 different divisions. Okay. So from five divisions in the late 19th century to almost 20 divisions today, you can see how that would water down the sport. If you took all of the junior and super divisions and eliminated them today, all right, even if we kept, let's say, cruiserweight, which I think is an important division, so you'd have nine divisions. Other than that, you go to the original eight plus cruiserweight. Essentially, you cut the number of divisions in half. Okay, you get rid of all the junior and super divisions, you cut them in half. What would happen instantly in this sport? What would happen? You would instantly double the talent pool in every single division, instantly. Imagine a world where a guy like David Benavidez would have to fight Dimitri Bivol or Artur Baturbiev to get a belt. Not Caleb Plant, not Demetrius Andrade, but he'd have to go up against Baturbiev or Bivol. Imagine a world where Canelo Alvarez couldn't camp out at super middleweight during a weak era and become an undisputed champion. But if he wanted to move up from 160, he'd have to fight Bivol, better BF. Same thing with Golovkin, okay? Uh, imagine a world where Jermel Charlo could not camp out at 154 during a weak division and become undisputed champion. He'd have to move all the way up to 160. And if we go back a few years, Canelo was there, Golovkin was there, Daniel Jacobs was there. He'd have to fight those guys. A prime Sergei Derevyanchenko, he'd have to fight them. Now Janabek Alamkanala, he'd have to fight them to get belts. I could keep going with this example, but I think you guys see what I'm trying to say here. It's the watering down of the sport really begins with the divisions. These junior and super divisions once were the original catchweights. Now we have catchweights in between the junior super divisions. I mentioned Jermel Charlo. Jermel Charlo just fought at a catchweight at super middleweight, even though he's a middleweight champion, quote unquote. And he didn't even make the, the catchweight, but that's a whole other thing. Uh, but you see where I'm going here, okay? If you eliminated this column here on the right, except let's keep cruiserweight because it's an important division today. And you go down to nine divisions, you eliminate the other 10, you instantly double the talent pool. The talent is there in the sport today. It's there. We've never had this much talent.
here, I'm including in the United States, we've never had this much talent from top to bottom, amateur to pro. Um, today's journeymen are, are more talented and skilled than journeymen of the past. Not every era, okay? But what I'm saying is there's just more fundamental talent with these fighters collectively worldwide than we've ever had but they're spread out over 19 divisions. If you whack these divisions in half, you're getting a lot better fights, guys. And then some of these pretenders that are hiding out in these junior and super divisions would get exposed. I mean, that's just what would happen. So, okay, let's pull back here for a second. And um, I want to make sure I didn't see anything. And I see a few of you guys are saying, well, the problem is they don't fight each other. Yeah, they don't. But also it's that they're not forced to fight the top guys. Again, I, I'm going to go back to David Benavidez. His best win right now is against Caleb Plant coming off a loss. Imagine if Benavidez, and Benavidez is a two-time title holder. He lost his titles outside of the ring. He wouldn't have a title in an era where he had to fight Dimitri Bivol and Arthur Bedrbiev. Maybe he'd win those fights. Maybe. Okay. But he would certainly have a lot more trouble with them than he had with the likes of Plant and Andre. But a guy like him could camp out at 168. He somehow boils down to that weight. He walks around over 200 pounds. But in eras of the past, he'd have to go all the way up to one. He'd have to fight at 175, okay? And he'd have to fight against those types of guys. It's Again, I'll use Canelo Alvarez as an example. He wouldn't be an undisputed champion. He could be at 160, but there's, I, I really have a hard time believing Canelo would move up all the way to 175 and beat better BF, Bevel, all He's already lost to Bevel, but you get where I'm, where I'm going with this. So, yes, the top guys don't fight each other, but even when they do, 154, Jermel Charlo's run at 154. Did he have to fight any elite fighters to become undisputed at 154? The answer is no. He didn't have, he fought some top five rated junior middleweights at that time. But were there any elite guys? Did he have to fight a guy in the level of a Canelo, a Golovkin, those guys that were at 160? No. But in decades past, he would have had to fight those guys to win belts. Do you understand what I'm saying? So there's that. Um, now let's talk about the sanctioning organizations. I'm going to pull up another graphic here. Let me find it real quick. Because uh, this is an important distinction as well. And this goes to my point about watering down the sport here. Okay, so the original sanctioning organization, again, the New York State Athletic Commission was kind of seen as one, loosely seen as one, but the National Boxing Association, the NBA, started in 1921. And then the four major groups that we know today of those four, the WBA started in 1962. Now, real quick tangent, the WBA, there are they claim that they're just the NBA and they changed their name in 1962. There are others that will say, no, not exactly. You started in 1962 and you kind of took over for the NBA and like took their role on, but you're really not historically the National Boxing Association. That was really a different animal and you are your own thing and you started in 1962. So there's some debate about that. That's tends to be the way I see it. Okay. I think that the WBA to, to, to claim that they go back to 1921 is kind of disingenuous. The way that they function now and the people running it and their rules and where they're, where they're headquartered, the way they do business, it doesn't tie back to 1921 and the national boxing association. I believe it ties back to 1962. Either way, technically speaking of the four major groups today, 
they are still the oldest by one year because the WBC did not become, uh, wasn't founded until 1963. Okay. But in the early 1960s, you had two major sanctioning organizations. Okay. You had two champions in a division. So imagine a world where you could have an undisputed championship just by winning two belts. One guy is the BC, one guy is the BA. They fight each other. They're undisputed champion. There are a lot of guys right now with two belts, right? Back in the day, you could have two guys in a division. They fight each other, undisputed champion. And it was like that for decades. Then in the 1980s, the IBF comes around in 83. And then the WBO comes around in 1988. Also the IBO, which a lot of you guys out there recognize, but it isn't seen as a major group yet. Um, they came in the same year as the WBO. But um, at first, the IBF wasn't really fully recognized. A lot of people didn't see them as a legit sanctioning body. It takes 10, 15 years for it to kind of sink in. Same thing with the WBO. A lot of people, particularly in America, didn't recognize it because a lot of their champions were non-American. And there's a lot of xenophobia and prejudice with the old school American boxing writers. They don't recognize fighters from overseas, particularly Eastern Europe and Asia. But eventually, by the late 90s, going into the early 2000s, there were four groups. And there were many media publications that would post the ratings of all four sanctioning bodies. I remember as a kid... I would buy certain magazines. There are even newspapers that would print this stuff back in the day if you go back far enough. But um, I remember just buying certain magazines and going to certain websites and stuff like that in the 90s, early 2000s. And you would see like all four sanctioning organizations ratings would be posted and you'd have to compare four different groups. OK, when I was super young um they they a lot of publications didn't list the ibf or the wbo even though they came around in the 80s most publications in the 80s even 90s really only listed the wbc wba ratings maybe by the 90s they started having the ibf on there but there just became more and more stuff more and more names you had to keep track of and now th there's mandatories for each of these groups, right? You had to keep track of all that. It became way more complicated just to be a casual fan keeping track of all this stuff. By Again, these groups, the IBF, WBO came around in the 80s, but it really was the 90s where it started to be a lot more recognized, right? So I'm going to say by the 90s, uh, it just started to become a lot more difficult. And you go from two champions in the 1960s, and through the 70s, you know, which a lot of people call the golden era and even the, mo much of the 80s, because like I said, those other groups weren't recognized yet to uh, four champions by the 90s and beyond. Um, but a major issue in the, 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 the sanctioning groups over the last 10 to 20 years, particularly this, I'd say in the last five to 10 years specifically, is they're breaking up their own belts. The WBA is notorious for that, right? They're the worst. Um, at times, they have three or four champions per division. So you're going from eight total champions back where we started, right? Where I was talking about the eight original divisions about 100 years ago, one champion per division. Now you literally have more than 100 today because you have 19 divisions each with four champions, but it's even more fragmented because the WBC and especially the WBA are breaking up their belts. You have a regular champ, a super champ, an interim champ, a gold champ, a silver champ, a diamond champ. 
Am I forgetting any? <laughs> There's all these different champions in this same division, in this same sanctioning group. So now as a fan of the sport, you have to follow like over a hundred names just to name all the champions. No one can do that. You have to go to, to a website where it's all listed just to keep track of the shit. Used to be back in the day, you could name the champions. You could name the mandatories, the top contenders, because there were a lot fewer of them. So I wanted to uh, just put some numbers on this and some dates historically for you guys. And again, this all ties back to Demetrius Andrade and David Benavidez. So let's talk about Mr. Andrade. And again, uh, this isn't to beat up on him. This isn't to kick a man when he's down because he had a tough fight last weekend. But Demetrius Andrade, technically speaking, in this era, there's no exaggeration. He is a two-time world, actually a three-time world champion, but a two-division world champion. He was a champion in two different weight classes, and he won three different belts in those two different weight classes. He's also a guy that is collectively throughout his career, if you look at all the money he's made, he's made eight figures, not just seven figures, but eight figures. This man has made over $10 million. In the 1980s, hell, in the 1990s, he would have never won one world title. I'm not saying that to put the guy down. Demetrius Andrade in modern boxing is a very solid, world-class level professional prize fighter. And he actually had a, a, a very good amateur career. He, um, he was a two-time national champion here in America as a welterweight, two-time Golden Gloves champion. He was a 2008 Olympian. Okay, this guy was a very accomplished amateur. And then he went into the pros, and, and a lot of people were interested in him. When he was at 154, where he started his career, he fought the bulk of his career at 154, junior middleweight. One of those junior divisions. <laughs> you see how this is all going to tie in. Um, I used to be interested in Andre. And, and I really thought, looking at him back when he was, I, I guess I'd call him like a baby contender, maybe when he won that one belt he had at 54, or the first belt, I should say, at 54, um, that's when Gennady Golovkin was like the top dog at middleweight. And I remember thinking, mm, this Andre dude, if he moves up to 160, he might pose an interesting challenge for Golovkin. I still thought Triple G would beat him, but I was looking at all the other guys at 154 to 160, and I was like, this Andre guy might have something. I remember really believing that. I tweeted about it. I talked about it on my show. Obviously, I didn't feel that way a few years later uh, when we saw what happened with Andre. But for a while there, I was really interested in him at 154 as a prospect and then a young contender. Let's talk about this guy, though, because, again, in this era, he's a two-division ch world champion. He's a pay-per-view fighter, just fought on pay-per-view, and he made eight figures as a fighter in this era. Real quick, at 154, it, it should be noted that Two of the three belts he won were vacant belts. The, the first time he fought for a title was against Vanez Martirosian, quality, good fighter himself, good fighter, and another guy who was accomplished as an amateur and did, uh, had a good career as a pro, but not what I would call elite, pound for pound, nothing on that level, right? But in 2013, Andre barely beats Martirosian. I believe he was dropped in that fight, wins by split decision, okay, wins the BO belt has one defense, one successful defense. Then he is stripped 
due to inactivity. Around this time, he made some very foolish business decisions, ended up re, uh, turning down a, a fight with, I can't remember which Charlo, it might have been Jamal Charlo, correct me if I'm wrong, um, but just made horrible decisions, ended up, I think, briefly signing with Rock Nation Sports, who was had a brief but disastrous run in the sport of boxing, uh, just made bad decisions and really screwed up any momentum that he had. But again, I want you to remember this. Wins a vacant belt by split decision in a very tough fight. Does never rematches Martirosian, which a lot of times, if you have that close and tough of a fight, you know fans might want to see that rematch. Never happens. He defends the belt once, stripped due to inactivity. Four years after winning that first belt, he fights Jack Colt K in Germany, 2017, for his WBA regular belt. Okay, remember that, WBA regular. And he beats Jack Colt by split decision in another really tough fight. So the two decent guys that he ends up fighting in this entire run at 154 through 160, he has split decision wins that are very, very close. Okay, wins this WBA regular belt. Zero defenses of that regular belt. I should mention that at the time, the WBA Super champions around this era were Irislandi Lara, then Jared Hurd, then um, uh, J Rock, and then Rosario, right? And then it went on from there. But around this time, it was Irislandi <clears throat> Lara, and then Jared Hurd. Andre, as the WBA regular champion, would be in line to fight those guys. He didn't want to fight them. That's the way it looks. He didn't want to fight them. Didn't want to fight Lara. Didn't see the money in it, I guess. And the difficulty. And then at that time, Jarrett Hurd was seen as a killer. He was undefeated. He ended up unifying belts. Andre did not want a piece of that. Okay. He ends up dumping his WBA regular title, which I wouldn't even recognize as a full world title because, again, the real champion in the WBA at that time was Lara, then Hurd. So I don't even know if we could consider him a three time world champion, honestly. But in this era, that's what he is. Wins the WBA regular title. Zero defenses moves up to 160. Now, at 160, wins a vacant belt against a Namibian fighter. Namibia. Not exactly a hotbed of boxing talent, but he beats Walter Kautu Duwaka. I'm butchering that name. In 2018 for a vacant belt. I believe it's the WBO once again. And this belt, he actually did defend several times. He defended the belt five times between 2019 through the end of 2021. Zero fights in 2022. Vacated that belt to avoid fighting Janabek Alamkanala. So he bitched the entire time at 160 about everybody ducking him. Nobody wants to fight him. He kept calling out Canelo Alvarez and uh, Gennady Golovkin, who were doing their own thing. They were on a completely other level, and they were fighting better fighters than Andre anyway, for the most part. Um, and it, he hadn't done anything to earn that fight. At around the same time, Jamal Charlo had a belt at 160. He never called him out, never sought a unification fight with him to create maybe a number one contender situation where maybe he could earn that big fight with Canelo or Golovkin never did any of that he fought in relative obscurity against b-level opposition five times between 2019 2021 zero fights in 2022 vacates moves up so before his fight against Benavidez 
this past week. Let's just briefly recap. Technically speaking, Andre was a three-time world champion in two different divisions. He had, of those three belts, between 2013 when he won the first belt up through 2022 when he vacated his last belt. So that's almost a decade, okay? Almost a decade of having belts. Three different belts in two different weight classes. He had six total defenses, okay? At 154, he literally had one title defense. And at middleweight, he had five against B-level opposition. So on paper, to the casual fan, he's marketed as a two-division world champion. That goes back to what I was talking about with this sport being watered down right now and why we have so few boxing stars. Because on the surface, you think, this guy's a three-time world champion. He's won belts in two different weight classes. This guy should be famous. He should be a superstar. People, we should be talking about him. He should at least be able to sell out arenas in his hometown, right? Nope. Because there's no distinction between Demetrius Andrade and some of these other names I mentioned. Jack Colke, Vanez Martirosian, Jermel Charlo, Jermal Charlo. They're all kind of synonymous with each other. They're all kind of viewed the same way by the casual sports fan. And nowadays, when you hear this guy's a two-division world champion, a three-time world champion, you hear that now, and you go, yeah, but so is everyone else. Everyone has a freaking belt. There's over 100 fighters right now that have belts. There are over 100 belts, I should say. It might not be 100 total fighters, but there are over 100 belts out there right now. So Demetrius Andre doesn't stand out in anyone's mind. There's no distinction between him and the next guy. Nothing. Interesting personality, interesting story to the guy. He, he's you know, unique, kind of odd, uh, but a very interesting personality. There's plenty there to market. He's, he's good on mic. He's good on camera, all that stuff. But the reality is he was able to win belts and make eight figures because of the watered down, watered down nature and fragmented nature of the sport today. He could go from... DeGuardia to Rock Nation to Matchroom to PBC and bid these promoters against each other. It's kind of like the child of divorced parents, right? Ask his mom for a candy bar. And mom says, no, no candy today. And, and he goes, well, daddy gave me a candy bar last week when I saw him on the weekend. Okay, honey, here's five Snickers. <laughs> because they, the parents want to get favor with the kid. That's what these fighters do now. I don't blame them. What I'm saying, I don't, I don't hate the player. I hate the game, right? So that, that's where we're at. And a guy like this in this era could be that accomplished. Whereas if you go back 30, 40 years ago, Demetrius Andre would have never won a belt. Maybe he wins a WBO belt in, what, 1988, 1989 when it first started because they had some weak champions. So the IBF when they first started. But... This guy wouldn't have won a belt with the BC or BA back in the day. There's no way. In the 60s, 70s, 80s, even up through the 90s, this guy wouldn't have been a champion. I'm not saying that to diss Demetrius Andre. I'm not trying to put him down. I'm trying to, in a historical sense, level set this dude and let you guys know where he's at. In a historical sense, okay, he would have never, there would have been no 154 for him to camp out at and, and hide away and fight the guys he was fighting, he would have had to fight at 160, even as a prospect. So he would have had to fight middleweights. That division would have been loaded. 
more loaded than it is now because guys couldn't hide out just south or just north of it. So everyone would be there. Or if he wanted to move up, he'd have to be fighting light heavyweights. Now, you saw how things turned out against David Benavidez. Could you imagine this guy fighting Arthur Betterbiev or Dmitry Bivol? Could you imagine this guy fighting Joe Smith Jr.? If, if Benavidez was able to land shots that really hurt this guy, what would Joe Smith Jr. do to him? There are plenty of names I could mention out there. Even a guy like Jean Pascal would probably give him serious problems, even off performance-enhancing drugs. Um, I'm talking about Pascal, not Andre. He's a clean fighter. Uh, okay, so real quick, the Benavidez fight. Look, Andre won the first couple rounds. I don't think that was a surprise to anybody. I think everybody pretty much expected that. The, the Vegas odds makers, everybody involved expected that. But from the third round, uh, where Benavidez really started to like, find his rhythm and catch up to what Andre was doing and get the timing and the spacing and all that down. And really from the fourth round on, it was one-way traffic. And it was a brutal one-sided beatdown those last few rounds. And ultimately, Andre retired on his stool. He said, stop it. And then his corner turned to the ref and said, stop it. It was Andre who made the call himself. He said, stop it. I'm not going to beat up on the guy for that. He knew what was about to happen. Everybody knew what was about to happen in the next round or two. So he um, showed his level by fighting by far the best opponent of his career. It took him 16 years to get there. Demetrius Andre went professional in late 2008 after the Olympics. Okay. He has been a pro technically, technically speaking, this was his 16th year as a pro. Now he went pro late 2018. So if you want to call it 15 years, okay, fine. This is a 15, 16 year pro. It took him that long to step up and fight a level or fight a, a fighter at that top level. And you saw what happened. I mentioned that he had very narrow wins in his title winning efforts against Vadas Martirosian and Jack Colke. The only dominant win he had to win a belt was that vacant 160 belt against a guy that none of you have ever heard of. Okay. And then look at his defenses after that. When he had to fight Alam Kanala, he vacated. Just like when he had to fight Erislandi Lara to be the WBA super champ, or maybe then Jarrett Hurd, he vacated. So he has avoided names. He took on this name because perhaps he underrated them or perhaps he saw like, hey, my career is winding down. This is my last chance for a big payday. And he went for the money because I don't even think there was a legitimate world title on the line for this fight. So, um, and, and I should mention, you know, he he's really had some terrible business decisions at 160. And even at 168, because he could have potentially been in the position John Ryder was in last year when he fought Canelo Alvarez as a mandatory. That could have been Demetrius Andrade had he made some other decisions. But he chose the road of least resistance as long as he could. And finally, after 15, 16 years, when he got in there with a killer, he got killed. This is a guy, though, that in this era, again, I'm going to say it for the 800th time, Two-division world champion, three-time world champion, guy who made eight figures plus. You take him back to the 1980s to the 1970s, he would have been seen as a perennial contender. And he would have made a little bit of money. He would have maybe challenged for a title once or twice and came up short. And that would have been the level you saw him as. Today, 
This guy's a multi-division world champion, and he makes a significant amount of money. I mean, kind of, you know, that's that, that eight figures, that's FU kind of money, right? His grandchildren are going to be millionaires if he's smart about it. So that's that's where we're at, guys. I mean, that's, that's the state of boxing uh, in this era, and that is why things are watered down. That is why, despite the fact that, once again, I truly believe we have more talent in this sport than ever, we have less stars because a lot of the guys like Demetrius Andre are champions. So how do you talk to a casual fan and say, um, you know, the real champion is, is Canelo or, or, or Canelo. Yeah, he's an anomaly because he's the top guy. Would you take a guy like Andre, you know, and you talk about like previous eras, two division world champions, three time world champions, you're talking about some all time great level names, right? In this era, it's guys like Adrian Broner. It's guys like Demetrius Andre. It's guys like Leo Santa Cruz. These are guys that in previous eras would have never won a world title, maybe one on an offshoot. Super chat from CJ Duncan. I appreciate it, brother. Thanks again. He says uh, 17 divisions is greed. More divisions equals more fees. That's right. It's 17 divisions that are universally recognized. There are actually 19 divisions uh, throughout the, the sport right now. And, um, yeah, think of all the fees these organizations get. They're getting paid more than ever before. And it ties back to a point I made earlier that we have more promoters promoting more fighters, fighting on more broadcast platforms than ever before. So these fighters now can bid the promoters against each other, but they can also bid the networks against each other. And then if you don't want to fight the WBA champion, okay, screw the WBA. I'm going to go fight the WBO champion. I mean, you have options galore, and those options simply didn't exist before, and, and that's why you saw top guys fight each other. My, my biggest gripe is with the junior and super divisions. I think if you got rid of them overnight, this sport instantly is in a different place, instantly. Now, the sanctioning organizations, those are issues. The, the champions everywhere, those are issues. But again, I'm trying to think of a world where David Benavidez right now is fighting Dmitry Bevel or Artur Beterbiev. Those are so much better fights than Benavidez versus Demetrius Andre. You know, I, that's the world that I would, if we had that world right now, boxing would be in a much better place instantly overnight. Okay. And that's how it all ties to Demetrius Andre and, um, and David Benavidez, real quick about Benavidez. I do think the fight between him and Canelo Alvarez will happen next year. I do think if you look at Canelo's track record, he does do diva stuff and he does want to have things his way and all. And he'll try to pull whatever diva stunts he can against Benavidez. It wouldn't surprise me if it's got to be at 166 or something like that. But ultimately, I do feel the fight will happen. Um, he's probably going to fight somebody like Jaime Munguia in, in September because that's a more winnable fight. It also makes him a lot of money. And then in September, he fights Benavidez. I can really see that happening, and that be his three fights with PBC. Uh, of course, it'll be pay-per-views. And I think that both will be big shows because the Mexican fans and the Mexican-American fans will turn out, obviously, for those two fights. Uh, don't be surprised if the fight – well, I was just going to say, the fight between him and Munguia might do better numbers – I would say in Mexico, I'd say it's a bigger fight in Mexico. 
than him and Benavidez. But um, here in America, the fight between Canelo and Benavidez will be bigger. How do I think Benavidez fares against Canelo? Listen, we'll talk about this in the months to come. But David Benavidez has looked like a killer in his last three fights. He's looked you know, unstoppable. But he fought a completely ancient, bloated, oversized David Lemieux. He fought Caleb Plant coming off a loss. Or no, I'm sorry. C Caleb Plant was not coming off a loss. Caleb Plant came back from the Canelo fight and he, he fought Darrell. That's right. Caleb Plant beating a, a completely shot the shit, ancient Darrell, scoring a highlight reel knockout, made people think he was back. He was elite. This, that, the other. Gets in there against the uh, Benavidez and, and gets beat. Um, and then Benavidez beats a bloated, overweight, oversized, undersized, I should say, Demetrius Andrade. I rate the Caleb Plant win as a good win. Okay, that was a good win against a legitimate top 10 super middleweight. You could even argue maybe top five super middleweight in Caleb Plant, who's, who's a proven bona fide guy, at least a perennial contender type, I would say, in previous eras. And um, that's a good win for Benavidez, but he still hasn't fought anybody near the level of Canelo Alvarez, even his version of Canelo, who has clearly lost a step and is not the same guy he once was. So my initial gut feel on this is that I still favor Canelo. Now, I might change my mind, okay? Let's see how Canelo looks against Munguia, because I, I do think he'll fight Munguia first, or it'll be somebody like that. Let's see how he looks. If he looks sluggish, like he's lost a step, you know, again, I, Canelo couldn't stop J Jermel Charlo. I think that a prime Canelo at 160 does stop Jermel Charlo. Um, but then again, Canelo, you know, he stops guys that are just at that B plus level, maybe even a minus, but the, the top level guys, especially boxers and movers, he, he doesn't stop them. And um, Jamel Charlo is a, is a good fighter. He's a, he's a quality good fighter, right at that B plus A minus level, and um, at least you know in terms of his ability to to survive and and protect himself in there. So I'm not that surprised that Canelo and Charlo went the distance. I'm really not. Um, but I, I just again gut feel early on Canelo decision against Benavides. But I might change my pick depending on what we see next year. Okay. There's a lot of time. It's almost going to be a year before we see that fight. So anyway, guys, I hope you enjoyed this. We'll do TNC again soon when I can find time. You guys know I'm dealing with a newborn who, by the way, yesterday, my little girl turned one month old, just yesterday. My little uh, daughter, Josephine, little Josie Pooh. Trent Nampereo with the Super Chat. Thank you so much, brother. He said, I was off with my Ergashev pick. Yeah, you and I both. <laughs> Matthias is the real deal. Pressure and volume style, a lot like Benavidez. Good point. Uh, champs inspire me, but it shouldn't be so easy to win one. 100%, brother. Great, great comments. Um, I, Ergashev, look, he claims that there was an injury. He couldn't move his legs. Was it really an injury? Because we haven't heard any details about an injury since. I haven't seen any doctor's notes or hospitalization or surgeries planned or anything like that. Was it really an injury? Or was it that Matthias shocked the hell out of his system with some of that power? I'm kind of leaning to the other. Right? I'm leaning the other way on that. I think uh, <clears throat> I agree with you, Trent. Uh, Superhero Matthias is the real deal. And I fully admit I underestimated the guy. I really did. And quite frankly, I kind of overrated Ergashev. 
who looked really good early on. Then he took some of those power shots and was like, yeah, this sucks. I don't want any more of this. Um, doesn't did not do well with that pressure style and the volume punching. The volume punching is the key there, just like Benavidez. Uh, it's going to be difficult for a natural super middleweight, natural middleweight fighting at super middleweight to deal with. How would Benavidez fare against better Biev and, and, and Bevel and guys like that at 175? I don't know. I don't know if he'd look quite as dominant. Imagine Super Il Matthias fighting at 147 against the likes of Terrence Crawford, uh, even Jerron Ennis, Virgil Ortiz, guys like that. He wouldn't look the same. So I, I want to see Benavidez eventually move up to 175 and what he can do there. Anyway, agree with the rest of your comment. Uh, champs are inspirational, but it shouldn't be so easy to win one. I 100% agree. Uh, the WBA cracks me up the most, though, because they literally have a belt called the regular champion. When I think of the word champion, the word regular isn't synonymous with champion. I think words like exceptional, spectacular, fantastic, outstanding, super. That's what I picture when I picture champion. So the super champion I get, champions should be super. They should be at the top of the sport. They shouldn't be regular. <laughs> Imagine if you go on a date, guys, with, with a woman and you're trying to charm her and you say, you know, you look really regular tonight. Do you think you're going to get any? Do you think you're going to do well? That night? <laughs> no, you're going to say, I think you look super tonight. I think you look gorgeous. You look, you know, beautiful. You're not going to say, yeah, that outfit, that's that outfit is really regular on you. What the fuck is that? You're not going to say that outfit's really interim on you. You look like an, you know, interim lady. You're not going to say that. Okay. So the WBA has to do some rebranding on some of their names. All right, guys, on that note, we will, uh, we will wrap it. Hope you guys enjoyed this brief historical look at how we got to where we're at did i miss anything am i wrong about anything do you completely disagree with my take that we have more talent today than ever before in this sport let me know in the comments get at me on social media and we'll chop it up on the next episode of the neutral corner all right guys i love this gail falkenthal she says i'm feeling interim today yeah <laughs> ain't we all ain't we all Hey, it's Friday. You should be feeling super. You should be feeling emeritus, diamond even. It's the weekend. All right, guys. I love you, and I'll see you soon. Peace.